0: podcast listeners you are all super smart and a whole bunch of you have figured out that this podcast is based on a television program that's right not everything you get in this podcast appears on television our podcasts are super special but it is kind of fun to see our speakers in action and there are visuals that you can catch every week on public television or join us for the premiere on youtube Every Sunday, 11.30 a.m., the program premieres on public television on the World Channel. It also airs our premiere on YouTube at 11.30 a.m. Eastern on Sundays. So, Sundays, 11.30 a.m., subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the notifications button. That'll remind you to tune in for the weekly premiere where I participate in a live watch party and chat. You can often talk to the guests. You can certainly talk to me, raise your questions, pose your comments, challenge us. I don't know, give us show ideas. We'd love you to join us. A lot happens Sundays, 11.30 a.m. Eastern, the premiere on the World Channel of PBS and on our YouTube channel. Join us there in the live chat for some live conversation. And while you're at it, why not put your money where your media is by becoming a member of the program? Go to lauraflanders.org forward slash donate. Do your thing. Now here's this week's show. Hi, I'm Laura, and this is The Laura Flanders Show, a TV and radio program that shines a light on the solutions of tomorrow today. We report on the people and movements driving systemic change from the worlds of politics, arts, and entrepreneurship. Welcome. Born in Harlem in 1924, James Baldwin grew up in poverty in New York City. In 1948, he moved to Paris to become a full-time writer. His first novel, soon to become a classic, go tell it on the mountain, was an autobiographical work about growing up in Harlem. Throughout the rest of the 50s, Baldwin moved around Paris to New York City to Istanbul. His novels, Notes of a Native Son and Giovanni's Room, explored themes of homosexuality as well as interracial relationships. As an openly gay man, James Baldwin also became increasingly outspoken condemning homophobia. In the early 1960s, Baldwin returned to the US, called by the movement taking place at that time. His book, The Fire Next Time, dealt with issues of black identity and the state of racial struggle. No Name in the Street, a collection of nonfiction reflections on the events of that era, came out in 1972. In the epilogue, Baldwin wrote about an old world dying and a new one kicking in the belly of its mother to be born. The birth will not be easy and many of us are doomed to discover that we are exceedingly clumsy midwives, wrote Baldwin. As we enter the second year of a pandemic and another Black History Month with a new administration in Washington that is already looking not so new in a country that is clearly having a very hard time giving birth to a new era, more and more Americans have been turning to the work of Baldwin and to Professor Eddie Glaude, Chair of the African American Studies Department at Princeton University. Glaude's work on Baldwin has been described as a spellbinding conversation across eras. Glaude's most recent book is Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. Eddie Glott, welcome back to the Laura Flanders Show. So glad to have you.
1: It is my absolute pleasure.
0: I'm going to start with this moment um, in which so many people, including yourself, have been drawn to the work of James Baldwin.
1: Why is it yeah. Well, you know, I think it has a lot to do with uh, his example, you know, this queer Black man uh, in a moment where there seems to be this ongoing desire to queer Black politics in particular and to queer American politics in general. And what do I mean by that yeah. in using that word coming out of an academic context is, right, to upend right, its assumptions, right, to shift its center of gravity, to, to, to allow a kind of misfittedness to change how right, it is executed. That is politics, it's conceived and executed. And so Baldwin brings to the table this kind of disruption of, 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 of widely shared assumptions about black leadership as male, as preacherly, as heterosexual uh, and the like. And he just disrupts it uh, repeatedly. Um, and then I think there's a sense in which we're catching up to it. He saw it, right? He 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 saw Trumpism, right, in Reaganism. He understood the nature of that fantasy mm. and how we dupe and you know and gave us at least gave me resources to understand how we reach for for the fantasy that was Donald Trump in some ways. You know?
0: So it seems like if it was relevant when we talked last time, which was a year ago, um, it feels all the more relevant now, the work that you're lifting up and the way that you're thinking about it. And yet there's always that sense of a door of opportunity, of real change, of structural change closing. Yeah. How, how are you putting your, your foot in that door, if you like? Uh, and, and how do you
1: think Baldwin would have us keep that door ajar? Well, we have to stand in the breach. We have to put our bodies there and we have to bear witness to what they're doing. You know, Baldwin in his last interview when cancer's ravaging his throat, he says, you know, I kept saying, I felt like a broken motor. I kept saying the same thing over and over and over again. You can only go to Texas so many times, but he kept bearing witness, you know? And he says, you know, and he, and he, and he said in some ways, he, know, he knew why the country did what it did. He knew why they cleaved to this idea of itself, right? Why the nation cling to this idea of itself? Because they they they, 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 it required this notion of whiteness in order to absolve itself of guilt, to absolve itself of what it has done to generations of people. And here we are in our moment, right now, watching folk cling to it, right, in a refusal uh, to to imagine themselves otherwise. Because we know that for the last forty plus years. We have been living under a political and economic regime that has fundamentally devastated our way of life. That all the evidence lets us know, all the evidence is clear that Reaganism or neoliberalism or whatever you want to call it is bankrupt. It's bankrupt, it has led to a society that where you have the top 1%, top one tenth of percent engaging in extraction, where everyday ordinary hardworking people are barely keeping their noses above water, right? Where it's transformed us from citizens into self-interested persons in pursuit of our own aims and interests, right? In competition and rivalry with others such that there can't be any, bro- any robust conception of the public good. Selfishness, deep-seated racism, have broken the body politic, broken the background agreements that allow us to be, uh, be together, and Jimmy saw it, and he screamed. So, how do we respond? To answer your question directly, without all of the melodrama, I suppose. He <laughs> said, "You know, we bear witness, Laura. We keep, all we right, just so keep it, screaming the truth, as it were."
0: So we. Well, so let's get very specific because I think part of our project here today is to try to give people some tools for how do they do this? Whatever field they're in, whether they're working on housing or education or healthcare or whatever it is, um, how do we keep doing those first steps that you say and Baldwin said were so important, those first steps of beginning again and again and again. So let's start with just defining our terms. When we talk about race, when we talk about blackness, whiteness, um, Baldwin says it's not about fitting people into boxes. It's about looking at power and
1: relations. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about it? Sure, so these categories are ways in which human beings make sense of the mysteries of their lives, right? It's the way we try to in some ways fix the world so that we can be more comfortable with with the difference that confronts us. And it seems to me at least that whiteness in a certain way um, is a really one way of talking about how certain bodies are valued over and against others something we talked about a year ago right and how that valuation of people who who are designated as white um, set the pathway set the grooves for the distribution of advantage and disadvantage and the world that we've built to reflect that reality so when we think about race or racism what we're thinking about are patterns historical patterns of disregard rooted in a certain idea of who's valued and who's not, right? And if we, if we understand the society in that way, then we have to deal with Baldwin's radical revolutionary inversion. At the, ba- at the heart of Baldwin's corpus is, is this. I, you know, I've been saying it over and over again, is that um, America's original sin is not slavery. America's original sin is not the extermination of native peoples. America's original sin is the price of the ticket to become American and that is to become white. So whiteness allows for all of those folk who who flee, flee from Europe to this place, allows them to see themselves in a particular sort of way and then to hold on to that idol and then to build a world that reflects it, which then justifies the extermination of peoples, which then justifies the enslavement of peoples. So when we think about race, in this sense, Baldwin wants to say this is the category that allows us to, or keeps us from grappling with the em- emptiness on the inside of us. So America is this unique expression of a certain kind of modern angst at the heart of the Western modern project. The
0: story of Baldwin sometimes leave women out. Um, but there are so many in that story, Margaret Mead, Carol Weinstein, his sister-in-law, um, his first biographer is a woman. Um, talk about his female lineage, if you will, or, or how you see that oh, sure. yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, he dedicates, he dedicates uh, No Name in the Street to a number of figures, but the first person is Bernice, his mother. And when you go to uh, the cemetery, him, both him and his mother are right next to each other. Um, and the first words in No Name in the Street are Burtis' words, Mrs. Baldwin's words. Uh, there's a sense in which uh, Baldwin inhabits a kind of masculinist discourse at times uh, that, I think, gets him into all sorts of trouble. But then you when you read Male Prison and the way in which he critiques Guide, or when you read freaks you see that there is this sophisticated kind of deconstruction of these gender categories that are rooted in his experience of women in his actual life right not only his mother his relationship to his mother but his own relationship to his siblings as the older brother who helped raise them right his youngest his youngest sister for example lived with him in Paris and and the like so they're they're everywhere but you know, there's there are a couple of things in the book that didn't make it. The, the, the extraordinary debate between him and conversation between him and Audrey Lorde. Oh my God, Audrey Lorde handed him his behind. It was really am- amazing to, to read. And then there's something that I didn't write that I, that I talk about all the time is that not only coming to terms with my dad helped me write the book, but also reading the exchange between him and Nikki Giovanni. And if you ever get a chance to watch that YouTube video, it's amazing, but there's this moment when Baldwin is running that masculinist line about the man having to go to work and having to lie and wear the mask. And then he has to come home and, and, you know, she says, and you take it out on me. And she says, well, why don't you lie to me? Lie to me. And Baldwin is there confused. Right now, he's this grand figure and Nikki Giovanni is this young voice, brash, confident, but she stopped him in his tracks. And it's in that moment that she gave me license to say say to him, you're wrong, Jimmy, you're wrong, but I appreciate the risk, right? (laughs) If that makes sense.
0: I I think it does, but this question of understanding our society came back to me, of course, every election, it comes back to me, why do white women vote the way they do? And Just to illustrate how one can constantly be informed anew, even about things that you thought you knew. I was reading Stephanie Jones Rogers' book, Um, They Were Her Property, about Mm -hmm. white female slave owners in the South. And I had only kind of started it before the election. I'd heard of it, I'd picked it up. But after the election, I started reading the details. And the one detail she described, and I'm just going to warn people that they may be triggered, but the one detail she describes of a, woman slave, a white woman slave owner who tempts her enslaved female person by leaving candy outside her door, tempts her to steal it. And eventually the young girl does. And this woman, Stephanie describes, then asks her young daughter to come and help her keep the enslaved young woman under the rocker of her rocking chair while she rocks on her head until she's disfigured. And that, was, that hit me in a whole new way. And I'm just saying, I'm gonna you know, end my 50s this year. And I'm learning new things, newly, deeply painful things about whiteness and femaleness in America. And Stephanie suggests that 40% of slave owners were women. They didn't own as many, they didn't use them for the same purpose, but it was property that white people, white women could own when they could own very little property. So I only insert that to say, I've been doing this a long time and that story was new to me and has affected yeah. me in a new way.
1: And you know, it's, 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 those, those questions connect, right? Because Baldwin wants to say that the depth of the American sickness cuts to the heart of who we are, that these people knew that they were selling their children. That, that gives us a sense of the depth of the sickness or that white women could participate in in unimaginable cruelty um, and as they themselves benefited from 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 whiteness itself even as they were subject to the cruelties of patriarchy right so there's this deeply personal sense because baldwin insists you know he uses the line in, in um in no name in the street of from Socrates that the unexamined life is not worth living. And he says it because he thinks the messiness of the world is actually a reflection of the messiness of our interior lives.
0: This is the Laura Flanders Show. I'm Laura. My guest is Dr. Eddie Glaude. He's chair of the Department of African-American Studies at Princeton and the author of Democracy in Black, How Race Still Enslaves the American Soul and his latest, Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. Eddie joined me twice in the last year. You can find our first interview and more conversations with Dr. Claude in our archives at our website, that's lauraflanders.org. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to keep up on all our free online exclusives, like my full uncut interview on vaccine hesitancy and how to overcome it with Dr. Day Williams, founder of Hip Hop Public Health. But first here's I Survived 45 by Josh Milan, courtesy of Honeycomb Music. I wonder which 45 he might be referring to. I survived 45.
1: 45. 45.
0: say it was personally painful for you to do this work and that had something to do with your relationship with your father. You don't go into it deeply in this book. Maybe there's another book there. (laughs) But talk about that and what what it's done to you to admit you still have pain to deal with.
1: Yeah. So here I am trying to write about Jimmy. I've been teaching him for 20 plus years, reading him for 30 and found myself grappling with the fact that I'm this wounded little boy Mm. whose father deposited fear in his gut from an early age. You know, there's a story I'm telling, I'm writing this book called The River City named after my little hometown in Moss Point. And my mother tells this story and she tells it with a laugh. My dad had just returned from Vietnam. Uh, I'm in the crib next to the bed and I wanted to wake them up so I was throwing my bottle my water, the, the milk onto his face. And he grab, He woke up and snatched me mm-hmm. and had me in the air. And that's all my mother could see was my onesies and my feet mm-hmm. swaying. And she tells it in a, in a joking, loving manner, but it becomes for me a kind of image that's prior to my memory of this man depositing fear in me and I've been trying to prove ever since that I'm courageous. And so I've been writing, so I'm trying to write about Jimmy, right? And, and I could not get the sentences on the page until I confronted me. Yeah. Otherwise I was just trying to imitate. I was mimicking, yeah. I couldn't write my sentences. And so Jimmy has his Johnny Walker Black, I have my Jameson and so I was just downing Irish whiskey trying to write my kind of sentences, but it required to deal with the messiness here right. before I could say anything about the messiness in the world.
0: So what should we do at this point, Eddie, Professor Claude? Do we pivot neatly to a slightly more optimistic and positive <laughs> part of this interview or do we keep going here?
1: Keep going, let's keep going. We gotta <laughs> deal with the funk. We can do both hands, we can do both hands. <laughs>
0: So let's talk about both ends. So, when you talk about we need living arrangements and political arrangements and policies that remedy
1: some of what we're talking about, um, what might they look like? You know, I think I think we need a public infrastructure of care right, to move beyond social safety net talk. We don't need that, that's language that's tethered to the New Deal and the like. We don't need to go back to that frame. I think we need a broad public infrastructure of care that reflects a different kind of moral and social contract we have with each other. Because they've broken the the previous contract. That contract no longer obtains. The contract that kept American workers from organizing like the rest of the world, all that's gone, it's out the door. The contract that salvaged capitalism with the New Deal, that's gone, right? And so we need a different kind of moral so- and social contract with each other. And I think one of the ways to represent that is a public infrastructure of care that has at least three legs, right? One involves healthcare, care, where we say to each other that we're going to invest in the fact that all of us will have quality health care no matter, you know, our, our class, no matter our zip code, no matter our color and the like. So, you know, we're going to make that a central feature of our being together. Mm -hmm. Another leg would be education. We're gonna guarantee every child in this country, not only the ability to, you know, that they can make dreams, that they can dream dreams, but they can acquire the ability to make those dreams a reality. So no matter your zip code, your color, your gender, right? We're going to spend the same amount of money on every child. We're not going to allow wealth and color to, to, to determine advantage and possibility. Right? So we're gonna invest in education from, from K, from preschool, all the way to college. Right? That's gonna be our contract with each other. And then the last leg of this stool that's part of this public infrastructure of care, as I imagine it, would be safety and security. We're gonna shift from law and order, that old, that old monster, that boogeyman. And we're gonna say that every community deserves to be safe and every community deserves to be secure. And what does that mean? We're going to address those social forces that destabilize our communities. We're gonna talk about, right, not just social services in this, in this narrow sense, right? But we're gonna reflect in how we budget. This is what I say. This is how I parse using WVO Klein's uh, language of explication by elimination. <laughs> this is how I parse defund the police. Budget your values, right. budget your damn values. And so that last piece has everything to do with thinking about what does a community, a safe community look like? What does a secure community look like? And, and so to me, this new moral and social contract will reflect itself in policy initiatives that suggest a different way of being together that's not overdetermined by whiteness distribu- distributing advantage and disadvantage or money overwhelming who we, what we say we care about and who we care about.
0: You went to Montgomery in the course of reading this book and that's a place that has a lot to teach about everything you've just said. I was there maybe around about the same time, maybe a couple of years ago and um, talked to Brian Stevenson about what had happened in this town, Mm. where, you know, it'd been your classic not doing too great kind of Southern town until he comes along and the, Lynching Museum and the Museum of Incarceration and American history that has not been taught is suddenly put on the historic markers or new markers are erected all through town. And I filmed some of the school kids reading those markers aloud. And I filmed um, Brian Stevenson um, opening a new part of the museum that had to do with lynchings in the 50s and, and since. Claiming or just reclaiming or just claiming for the first time the, the truth of that history has been really great for Montgomery. It was almost as if the town was proud of itself, and I'm talking white as well as black.
1: Yeah, you know, the civil rights tourist industry is complicated, though. Well, okay, but <laughs> <laughs> um, and what I mean by that is that you know I, I read the Legacy Museum and, and 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 the lynching memorial as efforts to disrupt the way that story is narrated in, in places like Montgomery, and um, and you know it's always these kind of a jarring juxtapositions. I flew into Birmingham and I drove to Montgomery and between Shuttlesworth Airport and the Legacy Museum was all of this detritus in between, right, the big Confederate flags, the the Confederate monument, Memorial Highway, all of this stuff in between the two. Um, And so what I love about what Brian Stevenson has done in Montgomery, is that he's confronted us and he's confronted the city with a dimension of the story uh, that isn't about triumph. Right? When you confront the soil, you know, and I, I remember these scenes, Laura, where, where people would be in the museum and they're leaning to see if they could read if that jar of soil came from where they were from. And so that's the violence, those coffins, steel coffins hanging, that's what they look like to me. That's not going to end in triumph. The arc of that story is not, you know, the absolution in in any melodramatic sense. So I think what he's doing in this fascinating way uh, is forcing us to confront the dimension of our story. Uh, that can actually open us up to a different way of being in the world, um, but also resist the, the standard narrative of the civil rights tour, right? Which is always triumphant in a way. Um, so it's, it's really fascinating to me. But at the and same time, be kind of
0: good for the economy of the place.
1: You took it right out of my mouth. That's exactly <laughs> what I was gonna say. Look at downtown Montgomery. It's, it's dramatically different than anything I could remember in the 80s. So the
0: last time we had you on the show was in April, 2020. I asked you then the question that I often ask at the end of the show, what do you think is the story the future will tell of now? And you said that this will be remembered as a time when the nation faced a momentous choice. Either we will finally choose to leave behind the baggage that has kept us from being a genuine democracy or the nation would double down on its ugliness and that would serve as the last choice it could ever make. So how do you think we're doing? Have we passed that point? Are we still in it? Which?
1: We're still in it. And we have to understand that in, in the interim between that answer and the answer today, so many people have been put in the ground. Yeah. We've lost so many for no reason. Um, And so um, I'm still praying. I'm still hoping. I'm still acting but the answer is not yet in.
0: You can find more information on my guest, Dr. Eddie Glaude and his latest book, Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its urgent lessons for our own at patreon.com forward slash the LF show, along with all sorts of suggested reading, listening and watching. It's also where you can make a difference by becoming a monthly Patreon partner of The Laura Flanders Show. Every time you do that, you help to keep our programming free as a podcast and as a public radio and television show. So again, become a Patreon partner with as little as 3 or $5 contribution. Your small monthly contribution achieves a whole lot. So go to patreon.com forward slash the LF show and sign up today. This episode was produced by yours truly, Laura Flanders, Matt Colicello, Jeremiah Cawthorne, Charlotte Carpenter, Nat Needham, Jeannie Hopper, Dominic Marcella, Mercedes Crostiago, Ryan Holtz, Rory O'Connor, and David Newman. Major funding for this program is provided by the Novo, Tomcat, Cloud Mountain, Fonda, Park, Shift Tides, and the Poss Family Foundation, as well as listeners like you. Thanks for listening. Stay kind, stay curious.
1: I'm Laura.